Hello, everyone. It is my distinct pleasure uh, to have uh, another episode of the podcast, uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprise Labs podcast from Research to Reality, uh, with my colleague Kurt Hopkins. Uh, who is uh, author and poet. Uh, hello, Kurt. We can't um, shake hands, so we'll do just virtual shake hands. Hey, Dion. Uh, so my first question for you is, how is engineering, uh, and especially IT, related to poetry? Well, it's about pattern recognition, I think, is the big thing. Nice. Um, writ large, I mean, um, when it comes to poetry, your you're literally finding patterns like rhymes and, and meter and so on, but you're also matching that up with meaning. Uh, and part of the big work of a poet is to figure out how form can amplify or echo or move against uh, meaning. And I think there's a similarity with the way that engineers have to see what's similar but hidden and bring that forward. And, um, and recognize, you know, ways of moving forward that maybe are not terribly obvious or, or are just literally outright hidden. Um, for instance, uh, I forget the name of the law. Uh, of course I do, because I don't have my computer in front of me, but it's the one that says that a certain, that the doubling of a computer's capacity is, uh, it happens every two years. What's that called? Uh, Moore's law. Moore's law. So Moore's law is by all accounts, eventually coming to an end. So if you were not a person who searched for uh, that which is hidden and patterns that are not easy to see, then you would say, well, that's that then. We've done computers, we better do something else. Instead, you know, engineers have hit upon a number of, uh, of solutions, including memory-driven computing, um, by completely inverting the structure of a computer, which is completely against uh, received wisdom. So being able to kick against received wisdom to see what you can come up with. So th there's a group of writers, they're actually prose writers uh, centered in, in France called Ulipo. And probably the best known person in that is not French, but rather Italian, Italo Calvino. And they decided to do what poets do, but with fiction. So they would, they would create rules and they would impose them on the next thing that they were going to write. So probably the most famous one is the fellow who wrote the entire novel without using the letter E. Uh, <laughs> you know, he didn't, he didn't do that just to be difficult. He wanted to find out is that if I do that, will I express myself in some way that's different? Will I discover something no one knew because who's ever tried to write a book without the letter E? Nobody. So, and if you look at um, Italo Calvino's, if on a winter's night, a traveler, all I'm going to say to you about that, because it was one of the big joys of my young literary life, is when you're done, look back at the table of contents. That's all I'm going to say. But discovering those hidden patterns um, is, is the joy, I think, that is common to both of us. So cool and so interesting. Uh, I never thought that way. Uh, you explained to me uh, poetry in, in, in a whole different new way. But speaking about you now specifically, how did you end up as a poet in Hewlett Packard Labs? Uh, well, the poetry is, is how I sh how I've sharpened my ability to um, to express myself. And what I mean by that is that, um, like you know, uh, baseball players will sometimes swing 
two or three bats at once, or they'll have a practice bat that's twice the weight, um, mm -hmm. or people will run with weights on their ankles. And poetry is like, is like swinging three bats at once, because when you have to do something like a piece of journalism or something else, you've already worked so hard at understanding how language can work and how forms can work. Because poems, poetry is a formal undertaking. Now these days, most people don't use forms, but the best people, including the best um, uh, non-formal poets uh, who've ever been, have been people who've been acutely aware of forms. So if you look at T.S. Eliot or Whitman, uh, even though they don't don't really write in a fixed form, uh, you can tell that if they wanted to write a sonnet, they'd write a sonnet. Uh, they have the ability to do it. They know what the rules are, so they know how to break them and why to break them. So the only reason that I can turn a phrase in a sentence writing about you know the analog computation engine is because I spent a great deal of time trying to figure out how to simply say something about falling in love in iambic pentameter. It sounds ridiculous, but I swear to you, you know, it's like a, uh, like a super marathoner. Once you do a couple of those and someone wants to take a six kilometer run with you, you're probably going to be okay with it. Um, and it also turned me on a lot to formality. Um, so since I've been here, for instance, I created a style guide. Because the idea of working without a style guide, in other words, with working without rules to break, uh, is an athlete to me. So, so all of that, all of that's led to the ability to write in any form. That on one level, there is zero difference between writing a blog post about ML ops and writing uh, a sonnet about my wife. Um, the the content's radically different. The effect is different. But the fact is, you're still according to a form and still trying to find expressiveness and individuality inside that form. So, so what are your specific uh, roles and responsibilities uh, at work at Hewlett Parker Labs? I'm the editor-in-chief for labs. So I'm responsible for the website, uh, for both creating content for it, but also um, managing it. The website, the social media accounts, um, and also writing for things like um, HPE's primary um, public-facing thought leadership platform, Enterprise.next, about things that frequently come out of labs. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm the overall overseer of um, how we speak to the world, how we speak publicly to the world. And it's something that I think was really started by Martina uh, Truco. Uh, she really had this desire to actually start talking to the world because, you know, HPE, along with all those other big companies, are what I call Cold War companies. So they, they started in secrecy and with some fear and with some a lot of proprietaryism. And then you've got to a point where you're losing out if you're not in dialogue with your users and your potential users. So <clears throat> it's my pleasure to try to um, affect that relationship. Uh, and it's grown and grown since I've been there uh, to a point where, you know, people ask to, for us to cover, you know, some of their specialists uh, on our blog because they've done something marvelous like won an award or, or published something in nature or, or what have you. And so it's a combination of, in the end, it's, it's a type of marketing. It's content marketing. But really, 
It's more than that for me. It's a way to discuss how cool the stuff is that you guys do. Because I, I, I'll admit it, I was a little surprised that a company that's kind of got a staid reputation was doing, was the only company I'd heard about, like, I mean, well, Google kind of does this, but like Facebook, eh, not really, does science fiction technology. I mean, I swear to God, if somebody's going to make it the first transporter, uh, it's not going to be Yelp or Airbnb, uh, which is not to say anything bad about those guys. It's not what they do. Mm-hmm. But um, but what you guys do, I realized very early on, was science. And, and technology I could take or leave. But science I find fascinating because it's just another way to examine the entirety of our living experience. So you mentioned uh, many roles, uh, and I really like how you define them. But of all these roles, there must be some, and I'm already sensing which these are, that you love and then those that, you know, you can skip. Tell me at least those that you love. Uh, I just love, I love to write. I love to write. And so what that means is I love to come up with stories, separate the wheat from the chaff, distinguish between a story and a topic, and then realize that's a cool story to tell. Then do the research for it, um, uh, find the sources to interview both inside and outside of the company. Uh, and then when I've got all that material together, it's the funnest moment is when all that stuff's together, no one's around, no one's bugging me, I don't have any meetings, and then I got to write something that is, depending on what kind of story I'm writing, 500 words to uh, probably the longest thing I've ever written here is maybe 6,000 words. And I just take a deep breath and clear my mind and find where I start. Because once I find either the the dominant metaphor in the story or sometimes the first line like I've been I've been at my house before the night before I was going to write something and thinking about a little bit and going that's the line and I write the line down and I know I've got the entire story done so that's the biggest that's the funnest part of it the least fun part of it is um is is organizing uh, well no that's not true meetings are the least fun part of it And how is it working with engineers? I mean, you author, they're engineer, you talk to each other, no problem, no translators. No, I mean, with with almost no exceptions. Well, when I first started, someone told me, well, don't bother the engineers. They've got, they don't like to talk to us and uh, and they've got too much to do. So there's a combination of kind of uh, infantilizing and adoring at the same time. It was really weird. And so I, so I said, okay, sounds good. And then the first two weeks, all I did was make appointments with you guys to talk. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that what you don't like is to talk to marketing and PR people about marketing points because mm-hmm. it's not what you do. What you don't mind doing, oh, my God, you're like the people that least mind doing this or that I've ever met, is talking about what you do. Mm-hmm. I, I, mean, I can get a conversation going with almost anybody in labs by asking, what are you working on? Are you still doing that thing? And then they will just go. And, and especially if they sense that someone's genuinely interested. And Because what I'm, I'm always trying to figure out how I can use something for my own personal way of looking at the world and for my own personal art. So, like, I remember one time in college, a professor whom I loved, but she was from an older generation, and she asked us, doesn't the fact that you know what the surface of the moon looks like reduce the the mystery of of it. And honestly, all of us were like, what lady, what are you talking about? (laughs) 
The more you know, the more you realize how little you know. The, the, the next thing you discover makes you realize that there are nine interesting avenues of exploration. So no, it didn't, it didn't do that. It, the more you know, the more you want to know. Um, the more you travel, the more you want to travel. The more languages you learn, the more languages you want to learn. So, um, so no, it's, it's never been difficult to talk um, to engineers. Now, there are people, just individuals who just, for whatever reason, um, aren't great at that or don't want to do it. But, mm -hmm. but I would say 90, 85 to 90% of the people at labs are, especially at this point, are always willing to, to talk. So we're not that bad. Uh, you, I, I can sense how much you like writing, but how do you find yourself in social media? Do you enjoy that part? How do you do it? What kind of social media? Tell us more about it. Well, because I don't have a lot of time for it, I, I realize that my social media, uh, completely unlike my kind of wackadoodle personal accounts, was very stiff and, and kind of dull. It was just like, um, Dayon did this thing. Here's an article about it. It was not great. And so when Peter Buckholz came along and, and this woman, Carolyn Drury, asked, could I use his help? I was like, yep, I sure can. Yeah, get him in there. And now I'm just like tossing things at him as fast as I can because he takes the time to craft mm -hmm. conversations in the same way that I do with, with the blog or with any other platform. And he's got the time to do it. So it's not my favorite thing. I, I, I've always been fascinated by social media in general because I started out using it when I had a, a nonprofit called the Committee to Protect Bloggers. At the time, 2004, I want to say, bloggers were getting thrown in jail in Egypt and Syria and China and so on. Uh, and you and there weren't activists, they weren't journalists. Mm -hmm. And so I figured, well, you know, I asked around, is there any of these, you know, Human Rights Watch or people like that that are mm -hmm are watching out for them. And they all said no, because they're not the people that we watch out for. So I started a, a, a nonprofit and um, then stopped it when it realized that, that those groups were in fact. Uh, um, but when I started, I was, I was talking to people who were all over the world. So suddenly I had people I knew in, uh, in Egypt and Israel and Kenya. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. And, and it's really has become a lot more, of a garbage dump than it used to be, I'm sorry to say. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we really need it <laughs> anymore, but it is a kind of a part of our communication structure, so. What is your advice to engineers in terms of writing? What are one or two advices you have for us? Uh, to know what your format, where your form is. So mm -hmm. you, most of you are used to writing white papers or technical papers for technical publications and so on. And it's hard sometimes to get people to understand that it doesn't matter how many times you've been lauded for your footnotes or whatever. If you write something like that for a magazine or, or a, like a like Gizmodo or some popular science website, it will die on the vine. That you have, it's like talking to different people. If you're talking to your mom or to your daughter or to a colleague, you're going to talk differently about pretty much everything. Um, so you need different languages um, and you also need to experiment and you need to know the rules of whatever you're writing for. And, and, and because you've gotten so much uh, positive feedback for certain ways of, I get some get people kicking back a little bit every once in a while when they write something that I, I have to edit. 
Uh, not not much, but a little bit. And, and that's the number one thing I would say to watch out for is to realize you're not writing a paper. You know, you're not writing your PhD thesis. Um, so one of the main things when it comes to engineers especially, and I try to do this when I'm writing, is show your work. So if you're making some sort of, if you're introducing a technological concept and everyone knows this term, just understand that nobody knows that term. And so you don't have to stay on it, but you need to say, you know, uh, you know um, uh, memory-driven computing, comma, a quick definition, and then return to what you're doing. Um, because the people that are going to read what you write are not dummies. They're smart, but they're not necessarily uh, engineers. So you have to show them along the way what you're talking about. And sometimes when I've interviewed engineers, and, and I mean, my, I've always said this, that my ignorance is my greatest strength because they'll start in the middle when talking about something they're doing. And I'll say, <laughs> I'll say, no, no, no. You've got to back up. Now, what's a computer? I mean, it's almost that basic sometimes. Um, and, you know, most of the time, they're all fine with doing that when they realize, okay, he's not necessarily dumb, but he's not going to be able to follow me unless I define these terms. That's a, that's a major thing. So you wrote a book, The Dog Watches and Other Poems. Tell us a little bit more about it. Where is this title coming from? Why did you write it? How did it happen? Well, I've written poetry since I was probably 20 or something like that. And, um, and I grew up in the Navy. So my father, he finally retired uh, after 20 years in the United States Navy. He retired as a senior chief. So that's the, one of the top enlisted ranks. So I grew up in the Navy. I grew up with giant ships around. I grew up with giant planes around. Um, I grew up in a nautical maritime environment. And my father was proud of his service, and, and we were proud of him. He was he's one of these guys who looked like so a friend of mine calls this one face he puts on when he goes into weird places, a ghetto face. And, and we, we realized all of us in the Hopkins family, we have the same thing. It's just a hillbilly ghetto face. And so my dad had this hard ass kind of uh, military look if you didn't know him. Uh, he's probably the nicest man you'll ever meet, but he had the, he had the uniform on and all that stuff. <laughs> it's funny to think about what a softy he was and how, what a, how hard he looked. So anyway, one time I came into a hangar, for instance, and I was small, of course, mm -hmm. but I've since been back to see it, and they don't get a lot smaller when you get bigger. I mean, it's 100 feet tall or something like that, and he was up on the top of us, the longest ladder I've ever seen, fixing something on the nose cone of an electronic warfare jet, which was as big as a 747. So, so all these things about the Navy are an integral part of my life. For instance, um, my wife one time said, you're not a huge fan of the military, but you're, you're, a, you're really a fan of, of the Navy. And I said, that's nonsense. And then realized, oh, crap, she's right. Um, so the dog watches is a term. Uh, when you have watches aboard a ship, you want to have some way of staggering them so that people don't get inured to that, you know, six to midnight shift or whatever. So they put in this smaller, oddly shaped dog watch. and mm -hmm. So to me, that was, it was both a way to honor my father, but it was also symbolically just a great capture of something that's always meant everything to me, which is, you know, what is it Shakespeare said? There's no beauty without some strangeness in its proportion. So, and, you know, you look at, at some 
um, some materials in computing and they essentially have to have a flaw in them for them to work. And then I remember uh, Da Vinci saying, uh, or Leonardo yeah, Da Vinci saying that when you close a circle, you've achieved perfection. But the problem with perfection is it's also death. So it's that weird off thing that makes everything else possible. So it had both a symbolic and a personal meaning to me. And I didn't write the book. I had written these poems for years and years. And mm -hmm. uh, a friend of mine who's a designer, I said, I wonder if I should try to do something like on Amazon. Do you, do you know anything about that? He knew a lot about it. And he said, I would love to design a book of poetry. I've never done that. So I said, and he's also a poet. So I said, would you be my editor? And so I, I, I tried to come up with a, with a concept that would arrange everything. And it's about the city because I'm from the sticks, but I, I love the city. Uh, and I've been in cities, Cologne, London, um, Paris, mm -hmm. uh, Nairobi. Uh, and I love the city uh, and I especially love San Francisco. It has, if for some reason it's just the woman I fell in love with, you know, it has a personality that is much more difficult and much more unusual than most cities have. So I wanted to tell the story of the city as I found it. And so most of those are about either travel or I kind of thought of it as a spiritual gazetteer of, of my life. Um, mm -hmm. Not just what I'd experienced, but also what I'd read, what meant, made a difference to me and so on. So, but no book in works about army. What's that? No book in works about army, only about Navy. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, um, you know, respect to all people who serve, but come on. If you look at any country in the world and look at their uniforms, Navy looks like the Navy looks sharp and, right. and army doesn't. I mean, God bless them. They do horrendous, difficult work, but you know, they do it. Uh, you know. we, we'll stop here uh, on that topic. Uh, who is your most favorite uh, author, poet? Which are your most favorite books, poems? Uh, well, I mean, my favorite poet is Shakespeare. Um, and when you get into his structure and his tone and his ability to, to modulate, whether it's in a play that's in verse or whether it's in the sonnets or the other po poems, he just captures a greater range of emotion and tone than most poets do. And I, I can hear Shakespeare in some of my poems. I'm not saying I'm as good as he is, but I can definitely see where he's influenced the way I phrase things. And um, the other two I like, one I don't like to talk about a lot because he's a horrendous Semite, but T.S. Eliot, the way that he wrote, the way that he went from, from formal to free is instructional. And the same thing uh, with Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman is certainly maybe number two in, in the, he's the greatest American poet. I don't know how anyone would, would beat him because he found out what the heart of America is and where we, we were betraying it all the way back in the time of the Civil War. Um, and everyone thinks he's a free verse writer, which is true, but he based, I mean, he was a Victorian. We don't remember this, but as wild as he was and as free as he was, sexually and politically and so on. He was from the time of Queen Victoria. And um, so he would take these long lines that you get from like Elizabeth Barrett Browning and so on. And he reshaped them for a more uh, muscular sounding uh, American verse. And he's one of the people, which includes Ginsburg and some others, 
that do this thing I call the, the, the logical positivism of American verse. There is a tendency in American poets to try to cap, well, um, novelists too, like Tom, Thomas Wolfe, to capture every single thing. Like this belief that if you have every single thing down, then like an emergent property, the truth of it all will come out. And I don't think it necessarily works, but it makes for an aesthetic that I find pleasurable. Mm -hmm. You touched on it in the beginning, but I'd like you to explicitly, if you don't mind, uh, come back to this, uh, about this relationship between art and science. Um, does scientists need to be artists? Does artists need to be a scientist? Um, the answer to both those questions is no, but um, anyone who practices a, a discipline, whether it's adjacent or opposed, is just going to get more perspective. So, and the problem with this is that all the scientists I've known practically are, they love music, they love paintings and so on. Almost all the liberal arts people I know don't know anything about science and don't particularly care for it. There are exceptions to this, obviously. And I think there are more poets who care about science than there are novelists. Um, uh, I was just looking at, uh, you know, Lucretius and Emily Dickinson and, and people who are both pro and con think that science takes too much away. And like Whitman's, uh, as I left the learned astronomer, or people who believe it's, it's magnificent, like um, uh, Poe's um, To Science, his sonnet To Science. Um, you cannot go wrong by learning the, the discipline that, especially because people tell you it's different, opposite, it's not connected. Well, nonsense. You could literally write a, 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 an emotionally effective sonnet about um, quarks. If you, if you had the right impulse and the right knowledge and the right language, uh, it's just not that hard uh, to make. Because things are extraordinary in this world, like everything, the fact that we even exist, the fact that there's anything called being is so extraordinary that nothing is outside the purview. What is it? Um, the, the Greek poet Kalamakis, I think, said, I am a human, nothing human is foreign to me. So as a poet, nothing, nothing should be off limits or, or should be out of my scope. And as far as scientists, um, again, training yourself to find those links, but also because science has occasionally, I remember talking to Kirk Resnicker one time and he said there was, that, that when, when scientists work in, an, in, a, in a company or in an R&D facility, whatever, if they are told again and again and again that the most important thing is say to productize something, even if it's not their main concern personally, they're not going to be insensible to that. It's going to make its way into the way they do their work. So we have wound up with, you know, Kalashnikovs and helicopters and atomic bombs and stuff. And which is one of the reasons I've, I've advocated for a conscious slowing down and rulemaking about AI, because we're in a position where we can make those rules and not have to regret or defend or excuse ourselves later. Um, so anytime when you're constantly thinking about the way that the world relates to itself, how people relate to the world, it's, it's going to have to help. Even if it's not going to literally like help your ability to do material science, it will help your fullness of thought uh, in your practice. So in other words, there's art of science and perhaps there's also a science of art. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm super crazy about those terms, but sure. Uh, 
Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. Uh, I learned a lot from you, uh, and I hope uh, our audience has as well. Thank oh, you. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm real flattered by your interest. Thank <laughs> you.